It's time for Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Morning, Michael. How you doing? I'm doing great. I'm not underwater, so I can't complain. You know, I was thinking about you the other day because I hear there were uh, water problems in the courthouse, and I'm thinking perhaps uh, at some point in future that that very helpful and reassuring whistle that is affixed underneath the council table in some of the courtrooms (laughs) may be accompanied by a snorkel or something similarly helpful in the event of a flood. That, that's exactly the kind of thing that they could mandate under the Emergency Program Act, right? <laughs> Snorkels under every table in the government. Um, there's been a lot of talk about the period of time that transpired between the clear indications that there was an extreme weather event happening and the proper declaration of a state of emergency, as you've advised uh, us in your materials here, three days after the storm occurs. Take us through how all that works and what the benefit of declaring a state of emergency at all might be at this time. Those are excellent questions. So in BC, we have the Emergency Program Act, which would permit the Premier to declare an emergency, either a local one or province-wide. Uh, I, I must say, I, when I read the act, I was having uh, flashbacks to that episode of The Office that Michael Scott walks into the room and yells out, I declare bankruptcy. <laughs> um, uh, and so the uh, there are certainly powers that are permitted here. The way it works is that uh, if there's a declaration of an emergency by the premier or um, cabinet, um, that would last for 14 days. It can be renewed by uh, order and council uh, for subsequent periods of 14 days. We just got out of one, of course, in the summer that we had going on repeatedly due to COVID. Um, and then it's also interesting to look at what is the effect of that, right? What, what difference does that make? Um, because, of course, the, the province of British Columbia doesn't have uh, a bunch of employees on standby ready to go and start, you know, digging out mud, this kind of thing, right? Um, the physical things that are being done are by individuals and volunteers and community associations and churches and, uh, and so forth. Um, other than, for example, the military, which we saw called in to do things like the uh, airlift, yes, the capacities that's provided uh, or that the province has is limited to doing various things specified in this act. Um, they can do things like ration food, order that prices be fixed. They can hire people to do things. They can uh, demolish property. One of the interesting powers is to cause the demolition or removal of any trees. I'm not quite sure what it means by causing them to be removed, because, of course, they don't have a team of tree removal people. They could hire people to go and remove trees, but there is no declaration that's going to cause these things to happen. And so you should read with skepticism, for example, when you read the press release, it talks about how uh, this declaration of an emergency will, for example, quote, ensure um, the transport of goods. Well, of course, it does no such thing. Uh, the things that transport goods are trucks, right? And yes. if you want to remove the trees from the road, you better hire a contractor to get out there and start uh, digging. Now, one of the effects that this does have, people should be aware about, aware of, is Section 18 of the Emergency Program Act uh, provides that once this is done, uh, it exempts all the people involved from civil liability. Hmm. So it exempts the premier, other members of the executive council, uh, local authorities, uh, people who are appointed to do things or authorized or required to do things. It means that uh, they cannot be sued for doing things or failing to do things which are done in, quote, good faith, unless you could show gross negligence. And so that's going to mean things like 
you know, if somebody was saying, hey, the province, you know, had some obligation to fulfill, uh, to do something or other to clear the road or to provide supplies or whatever it might be, you're not going anywhere in terms of uh, trying to uh, uh, sue over that uh, unless you could demonstrate that they were grossly negligent in what they chose to do. So there is that effect. Um, one thing, amusingly, the province does have, and I should say, one of the things you might expect from the province that seemed to be absent here for several days was effective communication and coordination. Yes. Right? The the, the sources of that were from radio stations and uh, Twitter and Facebook. Yep. Uh, and the government was largely absent there. If you were trying to figure out when was the highway going to be open, uh, you weren't going to get much information from the official sources. You'd get, uh, you know, no date can be provided at this time. The only way you were figuring out when something might occur would be to, you know, look at what people are locally reporting or what people are posting on uh, uh, Facebook and Twitter groups, which seems a little unsatisfactory. Mm. Um, One of the things the province has done, interestingly, is they've pre-prepared, and you can actually look it up on the emergency uh, management webpage, they've pre-prepared a bunch of uh, Facebook and Twitter posts uh, for people to uh, copy and paste into Twitter or Facebook. Interesting. Uh, th- things like uh, things you might post during a flood. And interestingly, some <laughs> local governments have been doing exactly that. Interesting. And simply copy and paste things like the helpful tip that, quote, you can prevent or reduce flood damage to your home by building a sandbag dike. <laughs> and so you can paste <laughs> that into Twitter along with a uh, pre-prepared picture with the title, Get Flood Ready. <laughs> So there are certainly people, well, we don't employ people that could actually do things like go in and remove trees or fix the road. Those are going to be contractors, or right? You can phone the fire department or the police department. But, you know, uh, one of the things that can be done is communications. And people are virtually starving for, you know, leadership and information when there's that kind of a disaster going on and people are trapped all over the place. Uh, And so um, I, I think there is a fair criticism uh, here, uh, leaving aside the you know, yelling out, I declare an emergency, yeah. uh, you know, many of the things that can be done there don't require a declaration of an emergency. Uh, it requires things like uh, the effect of, uh, you know, collection of information and providing clear, up-to-date uh, details for people who are right in often in pretty desperate uh, circumstances. Uh, none of that really requires you to come and yell out, I declare an emergency. And and here, I think once this is uh, uh, all the physical things are under control and people are safe and so on, um, that's something we're going to reflect upon. Uh, also, interestingly, the Act uh, makes provision for, even without yelling out, I declare an emergency. Uh, it authorizes making surveys and studies to identify and record actual or potential hazards. <laughs> I'm not sure you need the legislative authority to do that. Uh, what's required is you know, somebody to collect the information that's available and put it in a uh, place that people can access to figure out what's actually happening on the highway and when is that actually going to be open and where is the mudslide and and all of this. And it seemed like uh, that information was uh, available from people with Twitter uh, and not the uh, not the provincial government. So I'm sure in the coming days, once we're through all of this, uh, there'll be lots of opportunity to reflect upon you know, what exactly is the provincial government's role? What should they be doing? Uh, and, you know, what sort of information should be uh, should be provided? So there we have it. Because the Emergency Programs Act, uh, don't think you're going to be suing anyone if you're unhappy with uh, 
how the cleanup's going. <laughs> and of course, it was almost like something out of Monty Python, unfortunately, is that we did not engage British Columbia's emergency notification system that would override your cell phone, my cell phone, anyone in a given geographical area with uh, some sort of alert to give them important information. And there was actually supposed to be a test of this system yesterday. They actually canceled the test yesterday because they didn't want a drill to happen <laughs> in the middle of the crisis that would confuse people. So instead of having the test uh, notification go out, we had no notifications whatsoever at any point during this crisis. Right. Perhaps that's not the best time to tweet out the uh, test or send out the test <laughs> message telling you that sandbags might help protect your house from flooding. <laughs> poor, <Let's>, poor timing. <laughs> let's take a quick break here on CFAX 1070. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers with Legally Speaking. I'll continue right after this. Continuing with Legally Speaking here on CFAX 1070, an interesting civil case with respect to moving furniture. Michael, tell us about this one. Yes, indeed. So this uh, actually came out on Tuesday from uh, Western Communities uh, Courthouse. Uh, They, uh, I guess, managed to keep going despite the uh, flood conditions uh, downtown. Um, And uh, the case involved a a woman who hired a local moving company to move her couch and love seat and a few other things from a storage locker into her apartment. Um, And she made the booking on the telephone, and the uh, company dutifully showed up, picked up the said furniture, and then had some trouble getting the couch through the door. I think we've all been there. The uh, staff uh, trying to move the couch in tried various things, but ultimately slightly damaged the door and damaged the couch. Uh-huh. Uh, hence the hence how the thing wound up in court. Uh, and the legal principles that are involved there, I think, are ones that it's worth people knowing about. Um, one of the first principles is this concept of a person being a bailey for reward. There's some old English language. Hmm. Uh, the basic concept of somebody who's a bailey for reward would be a person who's uh, like storing or dealing with property for you for payment, right? Huh. And that would be distinct from somebody who's a bailey not for reward, which, for example, would be if I come up to you and say, can you hold this for me? And you say, sure, <laughs> um, and I'm not paying you. Uh, the There are some special uh, obligations and rules that apply once I'm paying you to move my couch as opposed to just, you know, if you ask your buddy, hey, do you mind moving my couch? And he says, sure, and <laughs> um, helping you out. And one of the differences is that when you're a bailey for reward, like the moving company is being paid, uh, when there's damage to something, like in this case, the couch, the person who was being paid to move the thing or keep the thing would have the onus of showing that any damage that befell the object uh, wasn't as a result of their negligence. It's kind of, it's on you to prove that you weren't careless in moving the couch through the door in that case. Mm-hmm. Whereas if it was just your buddy who sort of agreed to help you move your couch, they wouldn't have a presumptive uh, obligation that you, they wouldn't presumptively have been negligent if it turns out your couch got ripped trying to get it through the narrow doorway. Right. Uh, And so that would be the starting point here with the moving company. And then the other interesting concept is that when the uh, woman in this case arranged for the moving of the couch, she did that on the phone, phone them up. Hi, can you move my couch? Sure. Um, And then the company, after the fact, had uh, their computer system set up that would email out various legalese, kind of like, you know, we've all seen the, uh, you know, the iTunes agreement that you scroll through, have to click OK on before you can do anything, right? 
Um, it wasn't Seinfeld said you could insert the entire text of Mein Kampf into the thing, and people would say, "Yes, yes, yes, I agree, I agree." Whatever's <laughs> necessary to, to get up and use the program. Um, and so here, the text of the thing mailed out to the uh, uh, emailed out to the woman um, included uh, various things that purported to limit the responsibility of the moving company, um, including things that were under kind of misleading headings that said things. Um, like, you know, purchase protection plan. If you read the whole thing at the bottom of it, it would sort of say, oh, we're not responsible for anything. Um, and the, those kinds of provisions that would purport to limit the responsibility for somebody yes. um, are not going to be effective unless they're brought to the attention of the person at the time the contract was made. Okay. That's the general principle there. Okay. And it comes from like ski, I think it's a ski lift case that stands for that proposition. Uh-huh. It's like if I sell you the ski pass, then after you've bought the thing, you walk around the corner and there's a bunch of, you know, text posted on the wall or on the back of the ticket after you've paid for it saying, we're not responsible for anything. Uh, that may not be effective because it came after the contract. We already had the deal, right? You, I agreed to the price for the moving. I paid you. And then after the fact, just telling somebody in an email, by the way, we're not responsible if we wreck your couch, may not be effective uh, at uh, causing there to be a limitation of liability uh, because it just came too late after the contract was already made. So because of those two principles, that idea of the Bailey for reward and that idea that you can't just unilaterally, after the contract was made, uh, add some term to it, like we're not responsible if we wreck your couch, uh, hidden at the bottom of a bunch of other uh, things. Uh, for those reasons, uh, the woman's going to get her couch paid for. Um, so I think those are uh, day-to-day things people should be aware of. Bailey for reward and the idea that you can't just limit liability afterwards by uh, sending something out or putting a sign up. Uh, so don't assume uh, that all of those things are going to be effective at uh, removing liability. All right. So that's how that shakes out. The Supreme Court of Canada upholds, I'm reading here, the concept of starting points and ranges of sentence for various offenses. How does this all work? Yeah. So these were two cases that got to the Supreme Court of Canada. The fact pattern were two different men, both happened to be from Alberta, uh, who were convicted of like trafficking in large quantities of fentanyl. Um, And both of these men eventually were convicted. One of them was given a seven-year prison sentence. The other was given an 11-year prison sentence. Uh, The uh, Crown appealed those sentences to the Court of Appeal asking for longer sentences. Um, And the Alberta Court of Appeal uh, agreed. Uh, And indeed, the Alberta Court of Appeal increased the sentences from seven and 11 years to 10 and 14 years. Um, And... Uh, use some language talking about what can be referred to as a starting point, uh, or in some cases, the courts of appeal will use the term range of appropriate sentences for various offenses. Uh, And so the issue that went to the Supreme Court of Canada was whether it was appropriate for courts of appeal to set out starting points, like to say, look, uh, you know, for trafficking in fentanyl, Uh, In large quantities, the starting point is going to be 10 years in prison um, and goes up from there. Uh, And the reason that can be was controversial from a legal perspective um, was that, first of all, Parliament hasn't done that, right? If you look at the criminal code, it doesn't say the starting point for fentanyl trafficking is 10 years. It would give some maximum, like life in prison. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
Um, so one of the issues is, should a court of appeal be doing that if Parliament hasn't uh, seen fit to do that? Uh, and then the other issue is that courts of appeal are only supposed to interfere with sentences where they are demonstrably unfit. The uh, appeals are an opportunity, or it's supposed to be an opportunity, to sort of tinker around with what was done uh, unless there was some error of principle or the sentence is you know, demonstrably unfit. Uh, and so that's what went to the Supreme Court of Canada. And so we got an answer to that, kind of. And the reason I say kind of um, is, if you can believe this, the judges in the Supreme Court of Canada are all free to write their own reasons, right? And uh-huh. in this case, we had two judges uh, wrote reasons, two other judges concurred with them. One judge wrote concurring reasons, one judge concurred with those. Another judge wrote separate concurring reasons, and one judge wrote a dissent, which one other judge concurred with. And so you have to very carefully read all of that to try to piece together, well, what on earth did you find here? Because you all kind of went off scattered like cats and wrote various different things, agreeing with one another on some points, but not others. But the broad takeaway is that the uh, when you piece together the the outcome and the majority from the Supreme Court of Canada is that they, first of all, upheld those longer sentences, the 10 and 14 years for these two men. Uh, and as well, they found that that concept of having um, a starting point or a range of sentence set out by a court of appeal uh, was not inappropriate, uh, speaking about the fact that um, it can be useful for there to be sort of guidelines provided to lower-level judges when they are trying to determine what would be the individualized appropriate sentence for some individual. That concept that we should try to have similar people treated in a similar way. Um, And so, while the uh, majority from the Supreme Court of Canada emphasized that sentencing is a very individualized process and you've got to look carefully at you know who is this person and what exactly did they do and it's rare you're going to have two people who are uh, identical in terms of their uh, liability um, those kind of uh, principles starting points or ranges are appropriate however uh, the supreme court of canada found that in future cases if a judge a trial judge was to depart from the range or starting point set out by a court of appeal, that departure alone would not be the basis to find that a sentence was inappropriate. You would have to nonetheless find, a court of appeal would have to find, that a sentence was actually demonstrably unfit for that individual. And the fact that a trial judge might be outside of the range or below a starting point would not on its own be the basis to interfere with a sentence. So the the Supreme Court has said it's fine for the Court of Appeal to do that. It can be useful. Uh, But uh, judges have to pay attention to that. But because it's an individualized process and because of the limited authority on an appeal, um, the fact that a particular judge in a particular fact pattern found that a sentence outside of the range uh, that uh, was indicated, and that range, you could be outside of it in either direction, of course, right, Uh, would not in itself be the basis to interfere with it. So we're still going to see that kind of language ranges and starting points from courts of appeal, uh, but it's clear that there is a a discretion for judges to depart from them uh, in appropriate cases. All right, we've got a minute 20. Well, uh, I've got to say, if I uh, had a minute and 20 to talk about something, it's probably back on the uh, Emergency uh, Program Act and how that's played out. 
And I should say that act, apparently, there's consideration being given, I think, at the moment to how that should be improved and reviewed. And I think that's uh, good news um, because I think as we've seen uh, for the past few days, uh, there's, I think, lots of scope uh, for the provincial government to improve what they're doing and how they're doing it. Uh, And perhaps we do need to give some consideration in times of uh, increasing turmoil about whether there should be uh, additional resourcing provided so that there are people in place to be able to assist in uh, emergencies like this. Currently, we've got communications people, uh, but then uh, perhaps the uh, provincial uh, capacity to respond to these things uh, should be buttressed in some way. Uh, perhaps combined with uh, existing emergency uh, first responders, firefighters, and military, and so on, uh, many of whom uh, I'm sure would uh, and currently are uh, operating with a dual role. So I think we are, in the course of that review, likely to see some consideration given not only to the structure of that act, uh, but uh, whether we can do things to improve uh, the uh, ability to respond uh, more quickly uh, to these sort of emergencies. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defence Lawyers during the second half of our second hour every Thursday here on CFAX 1070. Michael, a pleasure as always. Until next week. Thank you so much. Stay safe. All right. Bye now.